Something that has always been interesting to me is crime scene investigation. Hunting for clues and piecing things together to solve a murder. Catching the bad guy thanks to a discarded cigarette butt or shoe print left in the snow. Matching fingerprints or DNA. The idea of forensic science goes all the way back to the year 66 AD and probably even further. It was during that year that Nero, the fifth Roman emperor, murdered his wife and then presented her head on a platter to his mistress as a gift. The mistress was able to identify the woman based on a pair of discolored front teeth. Over a thousand years later, in 1149, King Richard I of England helped create the position of coroner, which could help in the investigation of questionable deaths. 600 years after that, teeth came into play again when the body of General Joseph Warren, killed at the Battle of Bunker Hill in 1775, was pulled from a mass grave and identified by Paul Revere, who had made the general's false teeth. 1810 gave the world its first detective force, established in Paris, France. Two decades later, Scotland Yard is the first to use bullet comparison to catch a murderer. In 1850, a murderer was convicted for the first time based on dental records, and in the beginning of the 20th century, a test was developed that could help distinguish animal blood from human blood. In 1902, England saw its first burglar convicted solely on fingerprints. A year later, the New York Police Department began a record-keeping system for criminal fingerprints. In 1905, President Roosevelt created the FBI. What's followed over the next 100 years is bite mark evidence, facial reconstruction, luminol, the breathalyzer, blood splatter evidence, psychological and DNA profiling. It's amazing, really, how far we've come in the way that criminal investigation is approached. New tools and ideas are still popping up that will make it more and more difficult to get away with murder. Not that you or I want to get away with murder, although I've watched enough Dateline that I think I'd have a decent chance. Just kidding. Or am I? <laughs> There's one case in particular that, while well-known across the pond, isn't discussed much here in the States. It happened over 90 years ago, and the investigation gave us some of the most innovative forensic techniques ever used at the time. Warning, this episode contains information that some may find disturbing. The idea is not to glorify a horrible event, but to discuss an interesting case from history that paved the way for tactics still used today. Episode 57 Dr. Ruxton and the Jigsaw Murders. Bakhtiar Champa Rastamji Ratanji Hakim was born in Bombay, British India on March 21, 1899. His family were Parsi Indians, descendants of Parisians who migrated to India during the Arab conquest of the Persian Empire. His parents were respected members of the community middle-class, and fairly wealthy. Bukhtiar was an intelligent boy, but sensitive and had few friends. By the time he turned 13, he decided that he wanted to work in the medical field as an adult. His parents financially supported his decision and enrolled him at the University of Bombay. By the time he turned 23, Bukhtiar earned a Bachelor of Medicine degree. The next year, he became a Bachelor of Surgery at the University of Bombay 
and secured a job at a nearby hospital where he specialized in midwifery and gynecology. In 1925, at the age of 26, he wed a Parsi woman by arranged marriage. The couple didn't last long, however, and the following year, with help from his family and the Bombay Medical Service, he left for Britain by himself and concealed the marriage entirely. Once in Britain, he changed his name to Gabriel Hakim and enrolled in medical courses at London's University College Hospital. Despite failing his entrance exam with the Fellowship of the Royal Colleges of Surgeons, he was still authorized to practice medicine in the United Kingdom. From there, he changed his name again, this time legally, to Buck Ruxton. It was around this time that Ruxton met a 26-year-old woman named Isabella Van S. Like Ruxton, Isabella was also legally married to a man she'd wed in 1919 but only lived with for a few weeks before they went their separate ways. The two began to date and moved together to England in 1928. Ruxton worked as an assistant to at least two doctors before Isabella gave birth to their first child, Elizabeth, in 1929. In 1930, the Ruxtons relocated from London to Lancashire, and Buck began his own medical practice, which he ran out of his home on Dalton Square. He was considered thorough and compassionate by all of his patients, and he quickly became well-respected and popular within the local community. He would have patients from time to time who could not afford their medical fees, so he'd waive them. As far as the general public was concerned, Dr. Buck Ruxton was a good man. By 1931, Isabella gave birth to a second daughter, Diane. Two years after that, in 1933, Ruxton's son William was born. The doctor was doing well enough at the time that they were able to employ a young maid and nanny named Mary Jane Rogerson. Rogerson lived within the Ruxton home and practically became a member of the family. While his business and family were blossoming, his relationship with his partner, Isabella, was hitting a rough patch. Dr. Ruxton became increasingly suspicious of Isabella and her alleged infidelity. He'd burst into fits of rage at times or sudden bouts of hysterical tears within the walls of his home. His Jekyll and Hyde nature would often send Isabella back to her family home in Edinburgh. She'd pack up her things, grab the children, and head off until Ruxton inevitably called and pleaded with her to return home. And every time, she would. On numerous occasions, the police were called to intervene with a few instances of being forced to reconcile at the Lancaster police station. Officers noticed how the man would shift wildly from calm to erratic, bursting into tears. In 1932, Isabella went so far as to attempt suicide by inert gas asphyxiation. The attempt resulted in a miscarriage. At one point in 1933, Isabella made a report with the police stating that her husband had begun beating her. Police investigated her claims, but Ruxton denied the accusations and informed the officers that she had been unfaithful to him. Still, Isabella returned to him less than 24 hours later. In April of 1934, after another incident, the Lancaster police were called, and upon their arrival, Ruxton is quoted as saying, Sergeant, I feel like murdering two persons. My wife is going out to meet a man. Early in September of 1935, Isabella took a trip that may have been the final straw. She left for Edinburgh to visit one of her sisters, 
She was joined on her trip by the Edmondson family, close acquaintances of the Ruxtons. They, too, had family to see in Edinburgh, a brother named Robert. Dr. Ruxton decided not to attend as he had too much to do at his practice, but he knew that Isabella occasionally attended social events with a young man named Robert Edmondson. Despite being the one who didn't want to go, he assumed that his wife was actually traveling to meet Robert. He became more and more incensed as the trip went on. It was confirmed later that the two did stay at the same hotel, but that they had booked separate rooms. On September 13th, Ruxton informed both of the charwomen, or cleaning ladies, that he employed not to visit his home until the following Monday, September 16th. He told them that Isabella and their nanny, Mary Jane, would be away in Edinburgh. On the evening of September 14th, Isabella left the family home to visit her two sisters that lived in Blackpool. Together, the ladies would view the Blackpool Illuminations. Side note, the Blackpool Illuminations is an annual lights festival which began in 1879 and still goes on today. It's held every fall in the British seaside resort of Blackpool and currently stretches over 6.2 miles and uses over 1 million bulbs. Isabella left Blackpool at around 11.30 p.m. and returned home in the early hours of Sunday, September 15th. She entered her home on Dalton Square and found her husband awake, waiting for her. All of his jealousy and paranoia had boiled up inside of him, and it could no longer be contained. Without a word, he strangled his common-law wife with his bare hands until she lost consciousness. From there, he beat her and reportedly stabbed her numerous times. At some point during the murder, Mary Jane awoke and entered the room. Ruxton, not wanting any witnesses, turned his anger towards his children's nanny and repeated the acts that had killed Isabella. Later that morning, Ruxton got his children out of bed and rushed them into his automobile. He drove the three kids to the home of a personal and professional friend, a man named Herbert Anderson. Anderson ran a successful dentist practice in Morecambe. He asked Anderson and his wife to watch after the kids for the day. They agreed. Upon his return home, Ruxton proceeded to place both bodies inside his bathtub, where he dismembered each one carefully. He gathered what he could find around the house to wrap the body parts. He used a blouse, pillowcase, cotton sheeting, and one of his children's rompers, along with straw, sections of newspaper, and cotton wool. From there, he began tearing up sections of the carpet and rolling it up. At around 4.30 p.m., Ruxton stopped by the home of one of his patients, a Mrs. Hampshire. He requested that she and her husband return to his home to help prepare the house for the decorators he had coming by. He told the husband and wife that the work had been commissioned several months prior. When Mr. and Mrs. Hampshire entered the Ruxton home, they were confused by what they saw. The carpeting on the stairs had been removed. Piles of straw were in various spots on the floor and coming out from underneath the bedroom door. In Ruxton's waiting room of his home office, Mrs. Hampshire found rolled up sections of carpeting, stair pads, and a stained suit. Behind the home in the garden, she found two more sections of carpeting, along with a pair of burned towels. They weren't sure what to make of it all. Before they left, Ruxton loaded up several of the carpet pieces along with the stained suit, a gift of sorts. They could keep them as long as they cleaned them. 
Two weeks later, on the morning of September 29th, roughly 100 miles north of Lancaster, a young woman named Susan Johnson was enjoying a peaceful walk along the Garden Home Lynn stream. She stopped along an old stone bridge and looked down at the running water. There, near the base of the bridge, she noticed something wrapped, like a package, lodged against a large rock. Upon further inspection, Johnson noticed that whatever it was, it was wrapped in fabric. Sticking out from the side of the bundle was a partially decomposed arm. Local police were quickly called to the scene. When they confirmed that the package contained human remains, they widened their search to surrounding ravines and a nearby river. It wasn't long before they discovered two human heads and four more similar packages. Each package contained human remains in an advanced state of decomposition. The perpetrator had used various household items to wrap the body parts. Included in that were several newspapers. The detectives made note of those. Two editions of the Daily Herald, dated August 6th and 31st, a September 15th edition of the Sunday Graphic, and undated portions of the Sunday Chronicle. Once the parts were delivered to the local mortuary, forensic scientist John Glaster Jr. and Dr. Gilbert Millar were able to deduce a number of things. What they had before them were the remains of two females, one younger and one older. Furthermore, whoever the culprit was had extensive knowledge of anatomy. The person responsible had seen to it that identifying the two individuals would be a difficult task. Eyes were missing, along with skin, lips, fingertips, and teeth. The murderer had also used a surgical knife for the entire ordeal. The bodies were taken from the local mortuary and sent to the anatomy department of the University of Edinburgh, where they were quickly treated to prevent further decomposition. Three professors then began assembling the body parts like a puzzle. As they worked, another bundle was located and sent to the university. This bundle included hands that they were able to pull fingerprints from. By using an early form of forensic entomology, a Glasgow-based entomologist was able to give an age to the maggots that were found on the various body parts. He was able to determine that the death had happened before September 17th. Despite the efforts of Ruxton, the investigation was making headway. Detectives learned that the numerous pages of the Sunday graphic that were used to wrap remains came from a special edition of a newspaper that saw its circulation limited to the Lancaster area of England on September 15th. Scotland Yard officials were brought in to search the missing persons lists in that area. Before the body parts were found, Buck Ruxton had made a premeditated effort to keep the two women off of the missing persons list. He stopped by the Lancaster police station to report that his wife had deserted him. She wasn't missing, he informed them. She had run off with another man. From there, he stopped by the home of Mary Jane Rogerson's parents and fabricated a story about her needing an abortion, which was illegal at the time, and that his wife had snuck her away to have the procedure done. He suggested they not contact police to avoid getting her in trouble. On October 1st, Mary Jane's parents stopped by Ruxton's home to further inquire about their daughter. This time, he told the couple that Mary Jane was no doubt safe with his wife, as he had found that they broke into his safe and took 30 pounds. He assured them that once the money ran out, they'd likely return home. Ruxton's contrary stories concerned the Rogersons and caused them enough suspicion that they filed a missing persons report with the local police. 
Three days later, on October 4th, Ruxton himself finally went to the police station to report the two as missing. With the missing reports now filed, Scotland Yard paid a visit to the Rogerson home. They showed them some of the clothing that was used to wrap the body parts. Mrs. Rogerson was immediately able to recognize a blouse featuring distinctive patchwork as one that belonged to her daughter. She was also able to point them in the direction of a family friend who may have purchased the children's romper for one of the Ruxton children. And she had. Scotland Yard spoke with detectives in Lancashire and learned of the informal report that Isabella had run off with another man. And jointly, the agencies were able to determine that the last time anyone saw Isabella Ruxton alive was the evening of the 14th at the Blackpool Illuminations. That same day, the Lancaster Police Station was visited by Buck Ruxton. He was visibly upset, telling the officers that the rumors going around town were harming his practice and ruining his reputation. He asked that detectives be a little more discreet when asking around about his missing wife and maid. Little did he know that he was already the lead suspect in the investigation. They'd spoken to his charwomen, who both told the police of Ruxton's request to stay away from his home for a while. They'd also talked with neighbors, who informed them of the Hampshires being asked to clean carpets in a suit. On October 11th, police detectives from various cities converged on the Ruxton home. The search revealed numerous bloodstains on the stairs, railings, and remaining carpets. They noted how extensively the house had been cleaned and noticed that several walls around the staircase had been recently redecorated. The most gruesome findings were that of human tissue and fat, located in the section of drains leading away from the bathroom. The following evening, Dr. Buck Ruxton was arrested by Lancaster Police and grilled inside the interrogation room throughout the evening. When asked of his whereabouts between the 14th and 29th of September, Ruxton revealed a document he penned entitled, My Movements. He denied ever being to Scotland, despite the fact that he'd apparently hit a young man on his bicycle who then recorded his car's registration number. He continued his denial but could feel the walls closing in on him. On October 13th, Ruxton was formally charged with the murder of Mary Jane Rogerson. Police had been able to pull the maid's fingerprints from numerous objects within the home and make a forensic match. After hearing the charges, Ruxton replied by saying, Most emphatically not. Of course not. The farthest thing from my mind. What motive? And why? What are you talking about? While remanded in jail, Ruxton was next charged with the murder of his wife. Investigators had used the technique of forensic anthropology to identify her body. They were able to x-ray the human skull and superimpose the image onto a photograph of Isabella Ruxton. A professor working on the case had also been able to create exact replicas of the feet found in the stream. Using a gelatin-glycerin mix, the feet fit perfectly into shoes that the two women had worn in life. After pleading not guilty, Ruxton's 11-day trial began on March 2, 1936. His defense team claimed that the bodies had been misidentified and that Isabella and Mary Jane were alive and well somewhere. Their other claim was that the blood spots found in the Ruxton home could be blamed on the years of medical work that he had done inside that home. The prosecution called a number of expert witnesses while the defense only brought one person to the stand, Buck Ruxton. His performance was 
highly suspect, and he spent a majority of it breaking into tears and loud sobs. In the end, the judge's instructions to the jury took longer than the actual jury deliberation. After an hour, they returned with the verdict, guilty. Ruxton filed an appeal, which was denied on April 27, 1936. On the evening of May 11th, Ruxton penned a letter to his defense team, thanking them for taking his case, and stating, I know that in a few hours I shall be going to meet my maker, but I say to you, sir, I am entirely innocent of this crime. Over 10,000 signatures have been collected in and around Lancaster, with residents urging clemency for Ruxton. Despite this, he was hanged at H.M. Prison Manchester on the morning of May 12, 1936. The man that oversaw his execution was Albert Pierpoint. Pierpoint was an English hangman who went on to execute between 435 and 600 people in his 25-year career. The following day, a Sunday newspaper published a brief handwritten confession, written by Ruxton. His instructions to the newspaper were that the letter should only be opened if he was indeed executed. If he was acquitted, he wanted the letter returned, unopened. The letter read, I killed Mrs. Ruxton in a fit of temper because I thought she had been with a man. I was mad at the time. Mary Jane Rogerson was present at the time. I had to kill her. In the end, the case became sort of the birthplace for forensics as we know it now. Some tactics were used that had never been thought of before and proved to be too much for the defense team to overcome. Unfortunately, the police were never able to find all of Mary Jane Rogerson's body parts. What they did find was buried in a churchyard in the village of Overton. Some other things of note are the area where the body parts were found is still referred to as Ruxton's Dump today. Ruxton's home sat abandoned until the 1980s, when it was renovated and turned into offices. The bathtub that Ruxton used for the crimes was later used as a horse trough by the Mounted Police Division at Lancashire County Police Headquarters. It's currently on display at the Lancashire Police Museum at Lancaster Castle. I'll have some photos up on curator135.com. Little to nothing is known about the three Ruxton children. It's believed that Elizabeth, Diane, and William Ruxton were raised in an orphanage. Thank you to all the patrons who are supporting this show on Patreon. I couldn't do this without you guys. Thank you to Dave, David, Jim, Marie, Laura, Vicky, and Chris for being a part of the team. If you'd like to become a patron of this podcast, please visit patreon.com slash curator135. There are three tiers of support, or you can name your own donation. Please like, follow, and subscribe to Curator135 on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. And don't forget about all the great merchandise available at the shop. I'll have some new designs coming soon. If you enjoyed this or any of my other podcast episodes, don't forget to leave a five-star review. As always, thank you for listening. And remember, be good to one another and be creative. The world needs you. One, four, three.